0: You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. All right, let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we've gathered here this morning, Lord, Father, we've gathered here that we may bask in your glory. Father, we come here very excited this morning. Father, as we consider one of the great, great, great events that has taken place, namely the event of the ascension of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, we we can write papers, we can write talks, we can give talks, we can we can do the very best that we can and the very best that we're capable. But father without you. Father without you blessing us with your presence. Without you working through your word by way of your holy spirit this will really be a, a limited a limited exercise father. But father we come here we come here understanding that it's your great pleasure to glorify your son Jesus Christ. And we are here, Father, with the mouths of our hearts wide open, asking, O oh, Father, that you would feed us and feed us literally uh, with these great truths from your word, O oh, Father. And the great reality, Father, help us, O oh, Lord, to try to get our minds around just what is taking place, what is currently taking place as, as we think of the ascension of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To these ends, oh Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. In my notes here, I have in the Reformed Church, we speak a lot about the incarnation, and speaking of notes, I I think I had mentioned that I was going to try to make this just a little bit shorter than last time. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Jim's already given me a look, like, (laughs) it's about the same length, so we'll, I there's a lot of material here that I want to share, so I'm going to stick really closely. I'm going to try to be disciplined and stick closely with the notes um, so that we can get through to the end. But in the Reformed Church, we speak a lot about the Incarnation, and I i would even say, I would even add to that, in the Evangelical Church, we speak a lot about the Incarnation. We speak a lot about the Crucifixion. We speak a lot about the Resurrection, but uh, we, we're seemingly... An, I would even add hauntingly, uh, silent on the ascension. Um, And there's there's a number of reasons for this. I mean, some I'll take up in a proper time. But for now, let me say that um, because of our silence on this issue, in many of our minds, we think of the resurrection really kind of as the final event. You know, we we, we followed, you know, we've got Good Friday down. We've got the crucifixion down. We've got Easter Sunday down. You know, we've got the Christmas thing down, if you will, the incarnation. Um, We follow Jesus out and we we meet with the disciples and we get the charge that Jesus gives to the church, namely the Great Commission. We've got that down to go out into all the world and to uh, proclaim the gospel uh, to all nations, teaching them to Uh, obey and observe all that Jesus has commanded to baptize the nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've got all that going on. But then Jesus is taken up. And it's like we check out right after that happens. He disappears. Um, Do we ask where does He go? Do we ask why does He leave? I mean, if we ask this question, wouldn't it have been better for us if He had to stay? do, Do you ever think, I mean, maybe maybe you don't. I don't know. Um, I mean, if he would have stayed, we could have made pilgrimage to see him. We could have uh, maybe waited for him to come around, and then we could have got in the crowds and at least heard his voice. If we couldn't have got close enough to him, we could have heard his voice, or maybe we maybe we would have even gotten close enough to him to touch him. But he left, and we ask why this morning. Why did he leave? What what? Does he have left to accomplish? What's he been doing? Why is it important? That's what I want to take up this morning. I pray that by God's grace, we'll have a better understanding of, um, of this this morning. Now, what I've written, I, you'll notice in the, the first talk, the one in the spring, I I, I made it a point to tell everybody, there's not, I'm not going to get too technical. Um, it's It's not going to be too technical. I had kind of a different audience in mind for the first lectures. If you'll notice, I never said that this talk's not gonna to get too technical. I never said that. <laughs> this talk is actually gonna get technical. What you're about to hear is gonna start out pretty basic, but then it's gonna quick it's gonna end up in something that I I wouldn't hesitate to take to the seminary and speak on. And the reason I decided to do that is because listen, I, I who's here this morning? Who's gonna give up three hours on a Saturday morning? Um obviously you're you're very committed. Um, it's, it's a different audience, so I make listen. It's you know, for the, the, especially for the theology nerds, if I will I use that word kindly. Uh, those of us here in the group, I, I think you're going to like it. <laughs> but that having been said, and I'm saying this because some of you might be like, "Wow, okay, what was all that?" Don't 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 be upset by that. Um, myself included. You know, think think about the illustration that I've used many times about painting a wall. You know, I learned that from Dr. Watt. Uh, you know, learning is like painting, you know, if we wanted to paint this wall, you know, we wouldn't want to put the whole, all the paint on at once, you know, you you, you put a layer on, a thin layer, then you wait for a little bit, you put another thin layer and you wait for a bit. Uh, there'll be plenty here for everybody, I think. So. If you're feeling like at some points, why I didn't get all that, we're recording it. You can listen to it over and over and over again. And, you know, just try to get what you can get as we, as we go along. So uh, any discussion this, uh, of the ascension really should begin with a discussion of the incarnation. And I think this is going to become clear as we go along. Uh, so in this lecture, the first one, I want to go really from the incarnation to the cross. You know, which a lot of this stuff is going to be things you've heard before, but we'll try to put it together in a way that maybe is a little bit different. Um, so we're going to go from the incarnation to the cross in the first talk. In the second talk, I want to pick up at the cross and go from the cross to the ascension event itself and just begin to look at the ascension event itself. And then, of course, in the final hour together, I want to discuss why. Why does this matter? Um, and namely, where did Jesus go? We'll try to look into that as best as we're able. Where is he? Where is Jesus right now? Um, so let's start. Um, gospel truths are precious truths. Amen. Gospel truths are precious truths. And we want to become so familiar with gospel truths that we know them like the back of our hands, right? But there's always an inherent danger in that. And someone we may say, well, an inherent danger, knowing the gospel like the back of your hand. Yeah, there's actually an inherent danger in that. And the danger of that comes by way of familiarity. The more familiar we become with the doctrine, sometimes we lose the wonder in it. We can really lose the wonder in it. And we become kind of nose blind, if you will, to it. Like you can walk into a room and smell the most wonderful fragrance that you have ever imagined. You you take it in and you're struck by it. But as you're in the room for a little while, what happens? It starts to numb, doesn't it? It starts to numb and it starts to lose some of its beauty, if you will. The same thing can become true of these gospel truths. The first century was actually shocked over the radical uh, nature over the just the, the the idea that that God would take on flesh was so radical to the first century that they could hardly believe it in fact, many even considered it blasphemous to even suggest that God would take on flesh and of course as I, that's what I mean by the incarnation when i 'm when I'm talking about the Incarnation, the Incarnation is the wonder of the second person of the Trinity. Let's think about that for a second. The second person of the Trinity taking on a human body. Now, we think about that all the time. Um, and I'm afraid that we've kind of lost the fragrance of that. You know, especially growing up and hearing that Jesus is God, that... Um, He's very The very God a very God has taken on the garb of flesh and has walked and dwelt with us. A lot of that has lost its wonder. We've become nose-blind, if you will, of it. So I think any discussion of the ascension must begin with a discussion of the ascension. At the beginning of John's Gospel, the apostle writes these famous words. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Have you ever been struck by that sentence? I know I have. And oftentimes you get struck by these things in, in, in times when you least expect it. I remember one morning reading that, like I read every morning, and our devotions, they vary widely, don't they? Some mornings, and I remember reading those words, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And it struck me that particular morning as if it was one of the most powerful sentences that have ever been written. I submit to you that it is. It's one of the most powerful sentences. I mean, let's think about it. Before there ever was a creation, before there ever was a universe, before there was ever a single molecule of created mass, there was the Word. And the Word was with God. This me, the Word was with God. He's with Him. So the Word pre exists all creation, pre exists all angels, pre exists all authorities, powers, and rulers. So we stop and we think about that. There never was a time when the Word was not. The Word always was. You know, as a kid, I remember thinking, I remember praying as a child, God, who created you? I used to ask Him that. You know, I didn't know any better. I don't think the Lord found that sinful. I was just curious, God, who created you? Now, why would I ask that question? Well, because I've been created. and It's hard for creatures to begin to conceptualize a being that's never been created. It's very difficult. The Word always was. But, but don't lose track of this. Don't become nose-blind to this. The Word was God. The Word is God. The Word always will be God. And in verse 14 of John's Gospel, we're told that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal Word, who was with God, who is God, has become flesh. And of course, who is this eternal Word? who's undertaken this great thing, He's the Son of God. Second Person of the Holy Trinity. Our catechism is helpful here. Some of you recall question 22 of our Westminster Shorter Catechism. It asks, How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Anybody remember that question? Answer. Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to Himself a true body, a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her yet without sin. Let's look at each one of those parts real quickly. The eternal word became man by one taking to himself a true body. It's a true human body. Take your hands and put your hands together. What are you feeling? You're feeling your flesh. Under the flesh, there's bones. If you squeeze your hands, you can feel the muscles squeezing your hands. You can. You might even be able to feel some of the, the tendons. It's a real human body. The second person of the Trinity takes on a real human body. Hands, arms. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Because you and I have hands. The second person of the Trinity took on hands. <laughs> because you and I have legs and feet. The second person of the Trinity took on legs and feet. And quoting the psalmist in Hebrews 10, verse 5, the, Psalm, the, Hebrews, the author of the letter to Hebrews says, quote, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. It's a true body. The Son of God takes on a true body, but He also takes on a reasonable soul. He takes on a reasonable soul. Turn with me to Matthew 26 and verse 38. It's a place in in God's Word where we see this in such a powerful way. He takes on a reasonable soul. The context is the night of Jesus' arrest. Jesus is... Jesus and his disciples go to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus being fully aware of everything that was about to take place, namely that he would soon bear the wrath of God. Uh, Understandably, he's in anguish. He's in complete anguish. And look there at verse 38. Look at what he says. What does he say? My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Now, notice that Jesus is making reference to his soul. He's making reference to his soul. Now, it's not out of his divine nature that he's making reference here. How do we know that? Could God ever be so upset that he could be described this way? Could God ever be so taken that He's sorrowful even unto death. This can't be speaking of the second person of the Trinity proper. This is speaking of Jesus in terms of his human soul. Jesus has a human soul. It's out of his human soul. And hang on to this. This is going to be, in the last talk this morning, this is going to become real important to grasp. In terms of his human soul, he is in utter anguish. So he takes on a human body. He takes on a human soul. Sometimes in life we encounter things that that bring us to our knees, don't we? Yes, the inner person falls down. The inner person is brought to their knees. But here we see Jesus, in terms of His inner person, in terms of His human soul, He's brought to His knees. He's like us in every way. Thirdly, Jesus receives his body and soul through the miraculous conception of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. We've heard this many, many times. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary. It's important for our discussion this morning to understand that because Jesus has no biological human father. Why is that so important? It's important because he doesn't inherit original sin. That's why it's so important. We've inherited the sin of Adam. Each one of us. We've been born into sin. Jesus is not born into sin. He has no biological father. Almighty God is Jesus' father. This is why the angel brings the news to Mary, says to her, quote, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called the Son of God. The Son of God. And this leads to the fourth item, which I've already mentioned, the fact that Jesus has no biological father. He is without sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the Son of God, second person of the Blessed Trinity, has taken on human flesh, a real human body with a real human soul, and in terms of His humanity, is like us in every way. He is like us in every single way, except for one. No sin. No sin. So in summary, to understand the ascension, we must first understand that Jesus is one person. We've got to get this. He's one person. He's fully human. He's like us in His humanity. He has a true human body, a true human soul. But He's also fully God. He's also fully God. None other than the second person of the Holy Trinity. Sometimes Jesus is referred to as the Theanthropos. Has anybody heard that word before? The Theanthropos. It's two words put together Greek word theos, which is the word for God, and anthropos, which is the word for man. What is the Theanthropos? He is the God man. The God man. So the God man, Jesus, walks this earth. Jesus in his humanity. He lives a perfect life in thought, word, and deed. Think about that for a minute. A perfect life in thought, word, and deed. He he never commits a sinful action, never says a sinful word, never even entertains a sinful thought. It's breathtaking, isn't it? It's breathtaking. Now, let me ask the question that three-year-olds are famous for. And what question might that be? If you've had a three-year-old in the house, you already know the answer to that question. It's the why. <laughs> why? <laughs> three-year-olds are famous for the question, why? Why are they so famous for that question? Well, we once were three-year-olds. What do you suppose we did? We went, why? Why did we ask the question why? Because we were in a, 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 just a tremendous learning phase. I mean, the wonder of learning a language is amazing, isn't it? How do you go from just making noises to actually sounding words and then understanding what the words mean? The three-year-olds are beginning to develop in that area. And how do they learn? I mean, they're learning constantly. They learn by asking the question, why? And one thing that they learn by asking the question, why, is if they ask it enough, it gets on the nerves of others around them. And that's fun, too. They learn that, don't they? And they ask, why? Well... Why did the second person of the glorious Trinity take on a real human body and a reasonable soul? The answer to that question is really largely what these three lectures are about. Let's begin by asking, let's begin by answering by saying, why are we here? Let's ask that question, why are we here? And I'm not referring to why we're attending this morning's event, but why, um, why are human beings created and placed on earth? What is our purposes? And I think you all know the answer to that, but let's let's just go through it for a moment and let's think think it through. The answer is not hard. We get it in the first chapter of Genesis, Genesis 1, 27, 28, which tells us that we've been created in God's image, right? Okay, that means we were gloriously created. Gloriously created. And we were created to reflect God's beauty, His wisdom, His creativity, His righteousness, His holiness, His love. And we have been created to have dominion over the world so that we could be God's governors carrying out and upholding God's laws, carrying up and upholding God's precepts, carrying out and upholding God's statutes. And let me add to this, because that sounds kind of rigid if we leave it at that. This isn't a rigid thing. The, the, the God himself, who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they exist together in this incomprehensible love. It's incomprehensible to us. This love is so vast, so deep, so perfect, that it's incomprehensible, practically incomprehensible to us. But that doesn't mean we can't enjoy it. We have been given the capacity to enjoy this love, Why? Because the Father loves the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the Son loves the Father and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit loves the Son and the Father. And they have decided, let's create creatures so that they can share in this love. And we've been created and given the capacity, actually, to do just that. To participate, enjoy, share, and reflect that love. So we have been created out of this ecstatic love to reflect the Lord's beauty, His wisdom, His creativity, His righteousness, His holiness, His love. And it's in this ecstatic love, it's in this love that we're to carry out God's laws. It's in this love that we're to carry out His precepts. It's in this love that we're to carry out and uphold His statutes. And it's only when we are doing this that we're doing what we've been created to do. It's only when we're doing this that we're actually doing what God intended for us to do. Now, I think you can see the problem. Are we doing this? The problem is we've committed what R.C. Sproul used to call cosmic treason. Cosmic treason against God. We've declared war against Him with our sin. And that's why the 6 o'clock news looks the way it does every evening. I haven't seen the 6 o'clock news today, but I think we can all imagine what it's going to look like, can't we? We might not even choose to turn it on, given all the things that have been on the news lately. We might choose just to leave it turned off. I think I'm going to do that. I'm probably not going to be home anyway, so there. (laughs) But my point is, not what's the current thing today, My point is, why does the news look the way it does every 6 o'clock? that's because we're rebelling against God. What are we to be doing about being, I mean, how are we to be restored? That's an important question. Believe it or not, it's an important question to our culture because if you look, culture is always trying to answer, try to answer that question. Always trying to conceive of some kind of design in order to restore us, in order to recover us. And the interesting thing is the confusion of our culture. In one breath, it says, okay, we need to recover ourselves. We need to restore ourselves. In the other breath, it says, hey, we're basically good. We just need a little help schizophrenic, you know, contradicting. Uh, how are we to be restored? Can we be put in our rightful place? The answer is yes, and here's how. Why did the second person of the Trinity have to take on the garb of flesh? Answer, because it was sinful humanity that rebelled against God. There was man who rebelled against God. Okay? Um, that sounds good, okay? Because man rebelled against God, man has to be punished. Now, we just have one problem, which one of us could bear the punishment? Man, had, man rebelled, man did it, we understand that. If you did it, okay, it's your baby, you're getting punished. But here's the question, which one of us could endure the punishment? Uh, none of us. Therefore, someone must step into our place and... This someone is going to have to be someone who doesn't deserve his own punishment. In other words, this someone's going to have to be a perfect one. You know, we're going to need, we're going to have to search the world all over and find, we only need one. We need one perfect man. Can we find one perfect man? Just one. How many men have been born? Throughout all creation, we just need one to be perfect. Surely we can find one, can't we? You know the answer to that. You can't. But even if we could, this one person is going to need to be able to bear the sin debt of us all. He is going to need to be able to bear the punishment for all of the sins that we have committed. Now, where are we going to find a candidate like that? He's going to have to be man. He's going to have to be perfect man. But he's also going to have to be God so that he can bear the punishment. The answer that God has is the second person of the Trinity takes on flesh. He comes in the person of Jesus and there is the candidate. Jesus, the perfect man. We only need one. Well, we got one. Humanity got what it needs so desperately. You understand we need, we need Jesus more than we need any other thing. We have him. And not only is Jesus perfect, humanity is also God. And the God-man does the unthinkable. I mean, he willingly submits himself, comes and lives a perfect life and willingly submits himself to hang a naked on a cross in the most abject display of humiliation. And in the most torturous anguish that could ever be conceived, he hung there till the penalty of our sins was paid. And then as per his human nature, he breathed his last, and he said, it is finished. John 19, verse 30, it is finished. Now, that's a sentence that we can easily stumble over. Jesus said it is finished. We can stumble over this, when Jesus says this. We can take these words to mean that at this point in time, salvation is complete. Sometimes I'll hear people talk about that. Like when Jesus says it's finished at that moment in time, that our salvation is complete. That's not what Jesus means with those words, it is finished. What's finished is that Jesus, His anguish is over. That's what's finished. There's, I mean... this is breathtaking that the son of God would do this. It's breathtaking that Jesus would live a perfect life. I mean, if we could find a, a human being who was living perfectly, we would exalt that person as high up as we could possibly get them. But the one who did work, the one who did walk perfectly, walked in such low humiliation that he was barely noticed. It was subject to the most humiliating uh, penalty that's ever been conceived by mankind suffers, dies on the cross. This is breathtaking. It's, it's, it's hard to even get your mind around. But here's something it's even harder to get your mind around. When Jesus says it's finished, he's referring to his anguish. There's more for us, actually. Our salvation is not complete yet. It's not complete yet. Now, with that having been said, let's hold on to that. Let's take a a quick little break. And we'll pick up right there uh, next time. All right? Let's take like 10 minutes.